Chapter 94 of Varney the Vampire, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varney the Vampire, Volume 2, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 94 The Visitor and the Death in the Subterranean Passage. About an hour and a half after the baron had retired to rest, and while the landlord was still creeping about and joining silence on the part of the establishment, so that the slumbers of a wealthy and no doubt illustrious personage should not be disturbed, there arrived a horseman at the Anderbury Arms. He was rather a singular-looking man, with a shifting, uneasy-looking glance, as if he were afraid of being suddenly pounced upon and surprised by someone and although his apparel was plain, yet it was good in quality, and his whole appearance was such as to induce respectful attention. The only singular circumstance was that such a traveller, so well mounted, should be alone, but that might have been his own fancy, so that the absence of an attendant went for nothing. Doubtless, if the whole inn had not been in such a commotion about the illustrious and wealthy baron, this stranger would have received more consideration and attention than he did. Upon alighting, he walked at once into what is called the coffee-room of the hotel, and after ordering some refreshments, of which he partook but sparingly, he said, in a mild but solemn sort of tone, to the waiter who attended upon him, "'Tell the Baron Stolmuir of Salzburg that there is one here who wants to see him.' "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said the waiter, "'but the Baron is gone to bed.' "'It matters not to me.' If you, nor no one else in this establishment, will deliver the message I charge you with, I must do so myself. I'll speak to my master, sir, but the baron is a very great gentleman indeed, and I don't think my master would like to have him disturbed. The stranger hesitated for a time, and then he said, Show me the baron's apartment. Perhaps I ought not to ask any one person connected with this establishment to disturb him, when I am quite willing to do so myself. Show me the way. "'Well, but, sir, the baron may get in a rage, and say, very naturally, that we had no business to let anybody walk up to his room and disturb him, because we wouldn't do so ourselves. So that you see, sir, when you come to consider, it hardly seems the right sort of thing.' "'Since,' said the stranger, rising, "'I cannot procure even the common courtesy of being shown to the apartment of the person whom I seek, I must find him myself.' As he spoke, he walked out of the room, and began ascending the staircase despite the remonstrances of the waiter, who called after him repeatedly, but could not induce him to stop, and when he found that such was the case, he made his way to the landlord to give the alarm that, for all he knew to the contrary, someone had gone upstairs to murder the baron. This information threw the landlord into such a fix that he knew not what to be at. At one moment he was for rushing upstairs and endeavouring to interfere and at another he thought the best plan would be to pretend that he knew nothing about it. While he was in this state of uncertainty, the stranger succeeded in making his way upstairs to the floor from which proceeded the bedrooms, and, apparently having no fear whatever of the Baron Stolmuir's indignation before his eyes, he opened door after door, until he came to one which led him into the apartment occupied by that illustrious individual. The Baron, half undressed only, lay in an uneasy slumber upon the bed, and the stranger stood opposite to him for some minutes, as if considering what he should do. It would be easy, he said, to kill him, 
but it will pay me better to spare him. I may be wrong in supposing that he has the means which I hope he has, but that I shall soon discover by his conversation. Stretching out his hand, he tapped the baron lightly on the shoulder, who thereupon opened his eyes and sprang to his feet instantly, glancing with fixed earnestness at the intruder, upon whose face shone the light of a lamp which was burning in the apartment. Then the baron shrank back, and the stranger, folding his arms, said, "'You know me. Let our interview be as brief as possible. There needs no explanations between us, for we both know all that could be said. By some accident you have become rich, while I continue quite otherwise. It matters not how this has occurred. The fact is everything. I don't know the amount of your possessions, but from your style of living they must be great, and therefore it is that I make no hesitation in asking of you, as a price for not exposing who and what you are, a moderate sum. I thought you were dead. I know you did, but you behold me here, and consequently that delusion vanishes. What sum do you require, and what assurance can I have that, when you get it, the demand will not be repeated at the first opportunity? I can give you no such assurance, perhaps, that would satisfy you entirely but, for more reasons than I choose to enter into, I am extremely anxious to leave England at once and forever. Give me the power to do so that I require, and you will never hear of me again. The baron hesitated for some few seconds, during which he looked scrutinizingly at his companion, and then he said, in a tone of voice that seemed as if he were making the remark to himself rather than to the other, You look no older than you did when last we parted, and that was years ago. Why should I look older? You know as well as I that I need not. But, to be brief, I do not wish to interfere with any plans or projects you may have on hand. I do not wish to be a hindrance to you. Let me have five thousand pounds, and I am off at once and forever, I tell you. Five thousand? The man raves. Five thousand pounds. Say one thousand, and it is yours. No, I have fixed my price, and if you do not consent... I now tell you I will blazon forth, even in this house, who and what you are, and let your schemes of ambition or of cupidity be what they may. You may be assured that I will blast them all. This is no place in which to argue such a point. Come out into the open air. Walls have ears, but come out, and I will give you such special reasons why you should not now press your claim at all, that you shall feel much beholden to me for them and not regret your visit. If that we come to terms, I no more desire than you can do that any one should overhear our conversation. I prefer the open air for any conference, be it whatever it may. Much prefer it, and therefore most willingly embrace your proposition. Come out. Baron put on his traveling cap, and the rich velvet cloak edged with fur that he possessed, and leaving his chamber a few paces in advance of his strange visitor, he descended the staircase, followed by him. In the hall of the hotel they found the landlord and almost the whole of the establishment assembled in deep consultation as to whether or not anyone was to go upstairs and ascertain if the stranger who had sought the baron's chamber was really a friend or an enemy. But when they saw the two men coming down, at all events apparently amicably, it was a great relief, and the landlord rushed forward and opened the door, for which piece of service he got a very stately bow from the baron and a slight inclination of the head from his visitor, and then they both passed out. "'I have ascertained,' said the man who came on horseback, 
that for the last week in London you have lived in a style of the most princely magnificence, and that you came down here, attended as if you were one of the first nobles of the land. These things amuse the vulgar, said the baron. I do not mind admitting to you that I contemplate residing on this spot, and perhaps contracting a marriage. Another marriage? And why not? If wives will die suddenly and no one knows why, who is to help it? I do not pretend to control the fates. This, between us, is idle talk indeed, most idle, for we know there are certain circumstances which account for the strangest phenomena, but what roaring sound is that which comes so regularly and steadily upon the ear? It is the sea washing upon the coast. The tide is no doubt advancing, and, as the eddying surges roll in upon the pebbly shore, they make what, to my mind, is this pleasant music. I did not think we were so near the ocean. The moon is rising. Let us walk upon the beach, and as that sound is such pleasant music, you shall hear it while I convince you what unpleasant consequences will arise from a refusal of the modest and moderate terms I offer you. We shall see, we shall see. But I must confess it does seem to me most extraordinary that you ask of me a positive fortune, for fear you should deprive me of a portion of one. But you cannot mean what you say. While they were talking, they reached a long strip of sand which was by the seashore, at the base of some cliffs, through which was excavated the passage from the coast into the grounds of Anderbury House, and which had been so expatiated upon the landlord of the inn in his description of the advantages attendant upon that property. There were some rude steps leading to a narrow arched doorway, which constituted an entrance to this subterraneous region, and as the moonlight streamed over the wide waste of waters and fell upon this little doorway in the face of the cliff, he became convinced that it was the entrance to that excavation, and he eyed it curiously. "'What place is that?' said his companion. It is a private entrance to the grounds of a mansion in this neighborhood. Private enough, I should presume, for if there be any other means of reaching the house, surely no one would go through such a dismal hole as that towards it. But come, make up your mind at once. There need be no quarreling upon the subject of our conference, but let it be a plain matter of yes or no. Is it worth your while to be left alone in peace, or is it not? It is worth my while, but not at such a price as that you mentioned and I cannot help thinking that some cheaper mode of accomplishing the same object will surely present itself very shortly. I do not understand you. You talk ambiguously. But my axe, said the baron, shall be clear and plain enough, as you shall see. Could you believe it possible that I was the sort of person to submit timely to any amount of extortion you chose to practice upon me? There was a time when I thought you possessed great sense and judgment, when I thought that you were a man who weighed well the chances of what you were about. But now I know to the contrary, and I think for less than a thousand pounds I may succeed in ridding myself of you. I do not understand you. You had better beware how you tamper with me, for I am not one who will be calmly disposed to put up with much. The sense, tact, and worldly knowledge which you say you have before, from time to time, given me credit for, belongs to me still and I am not likely easily to commit myself. Indeed, do you think you bear such a charmed life that nothing can shake it? I think nothing of the sort, but I know what I can do. I am armed. And I, and since it comes to this, take the reward of your villainy, for it was you who made me what I am, and would now seek to destroy my every hope of satisfaction.
As the baron spoke, he drew from breast a small pistol, which, with the quickness of thought, he held full in the face of his companion, and pulled the trigger. There can be no doubt on earth but that his intention was to commit the murder, but the pistol missed fire, and he was defeated in his intention at that moment. Then the stranger laughed scornfully, and drawing a pistol from his pocket, he presented it at the baron's head, saying, Do I not bear a charmed life? If I had not, should I have escaped death from you now? No, I could not, but you perceive that even a weapon that might not fail you upon another occasion is harmless against me. And can you expect that I will hesitate now to take full and ample revenge upon you for this dastardly attempt? These words were spoken with great volubility, so much so, indeed, that they only occupied a few very brief seconds in delivering, and then, perhaps, the baron's career might have ended for it seemed to be fully the intention of the other to conclude what he said by firing the pistol in his face. But the wily aspect of the baron's countenance was, after all, but a fair index of the mind, and, just as the last words passed the lips of his irritated companion, he suddenly dropped in a crouching position to the ground, and, seizing his legs, threw him over his head in an instant. The pistol was discharged at the same moment, and then, with a shout of rage and satisfaction, the baron sprang upon his foe, and kneeling upon his breast, he held aloft in his hand a glittering dagger, the highly polished blade of which caught the moonbeams, and reflected them into the dazzled eyes of the conquered man, whose fate now appeared to be certain. "'Fool!' said the baron. "'You must needs, then, try conclusions with me, and, not content with the safety of insignificance, you must be absurd enough to think it possible you could extort from me whatever sums your fancy dictated.' or with any effect threaten me, if I complied not with your desires. Have mercy upon me. I meant not to take your life, and therefore why should you take mine? You would have taken it, and therefore you shall die. Know, too, at this your last moment, that, vampire as you are, and as I, of all men, best know you to be, I will take a special care that you shall be placed in some position after death, where the revivifying moonbeams may not touch you so that this shall truly be your end, and you shall rot away, leaving no trace behind of your existence, sufficient to contain that vital principle. No, no, you cannot, will not, you must have mercy. Ask the famished tiger for mercy when you intrude upon his den. As he spoke, the baron ground his teeth together with rage, and in an instant buried the poniard in the throat of his victim. The blade went through to the yellow sand beneath, and the murderer still knelt upon the man's chest, while he who had thus received so fatal a blow tossed his arms about with agony and tried in vain to shriek. The nature of the wound, however, prevented him from uttering anything but a low gurgling sound, for he was nearly choked with his own blood, and soon his eyes became fixed and of a glassy appearance. He stretched out his two arms and dug his fingers deep into the sand. The baron drew forth the poniard, and a gush of blood immediately followed it, and then one deep groan testified to the fact that the spirit, if there be a spirit, had left its mortal habitation and winged its flight to other realms, if there be other realms for it to wing its flight to. He is dead, said the baron, and at the same moment a roll of the advancing tide swept over the body, drenching the living as well as the dead with the brine of the ocean. The baron stooped and rinsed the dagger in the advancing tide from the clotted blood which had clung to it, and then, 
Wiping it carefully, he returned it to its sheath, which was hidden within the folds of his dress, and, rising from his kneeling posture upon the body, he stood by its side, with folded arms, gazing upon it, for some minutes in silence, heedless of the still advancing water, which was already considerably above his feet. Then he spoke in his ordinary accents, and evidently caring nothing for the fact that he had done such a deed. "'I must dispose of this carcass,' he said, which now seems so lifeless, for the moon is up, and if its beams fall upon it, I know from former experience what will happen. It will rise again and walk the earth, seeking for vengeance upon me, and the thirst for that vengeance will become such a part of its very nature that it will surely accomplish something, if not all that it desires. After a few moments' consideration, he stooped, and with more strength than one would have thought it possible, a man reduced almost as he was to a skeleton could have exerted, he lifted the body and carried it rapidly up the beach towards the cliffs. He threw it down upon the stone steps that led to the small door of the excavation in the cliff, and it fell upon them with a sickening sound, as if some of the bones were surely broken by the fall. The object, then, of the baron seemed to be to get this door open, if he possibly could. But that was an object easier to be desired than carried into effect, for, although he exerted his utmost power, he did not succeed in moving it an inch, and he began evidently to think that it would be impossible to do so. But yet he did not give up the attempt at once, but, looking about upon the beach, until he found a very large, heavy stone, he raised it in his arms, and approaching the door, he flung it against it with such tremendous force that it flew open instantly, disclosing within a dark and narrow passage. Apparently rejoiced that he had accomplished this much, he stepped cautiously within the entrance, and then, taking from a concealed pocket that was in the velvet cloak which he wore a little box, he produced from it some wax lights and some chemical matches, which, by the slightest effort, he succeeded in igniting, and then, with one of the lights in his hand to guide him on his way, he went on exploring the passage, and treading with extreme caution as he went, for fear of falling into any of the ice-wells which were reported to be in that place. After proceeding about twenty yards, and finding that there was no danger, he became less cautious, but in consequence of such less caution, he very nearly sacrificed his life, for he came upon an ice-well which seemed a considerable depth, and into which he had nearly plunged headlong. He started back with some degree of horror, but that soon left him, and then, after a moment's thought, he sought for some little nook in the wall in which he might place the candle and soon finding one that answered the purpose well, he there left it, having all the appearance of a little shrine, while he proceeded again to the mouth of that singular and cavernous-looking place. He had, evidently, quite made up his mind what to do, for, without a moment's hesitation, he lifted the body again, and carried it within the entrance, walking boldly and firmly, now that he knew there was no danger between him and the light, which shed a gleam through the darkness of the place of a very faint and flickering character. He reached it rapidly, and when he got to the side of the well, he, without a moment's hesitation, flung it headlong down, and, listening attentively, he heard it fall with a slight plash, as if there was some water at the bottom of the pit. It was an annoyance, however, for him to find that the distance was not so deep as he had anticipated, and when he took the light from the niche where he had placed it, and looked earnestly down, he could see the livid, ghastly-looking face of the dead man, 
for the body had accidentally fallen upon its back, which was a circumstance he had not counted upon, and one which increased the chances greatly of its being seen, should any one be exploring, from curiosity, that not very inviting place. This was annoyance, but how could it be prevented, unless, indeed, he chose to descend, and make an alteration in the disposition of the corpse? But this was evidently what he did not choose to do, so, after muttering to himself a few words expressive of his intention to leave it where it was, he replaced the candle, after extinguishing it, in the box from whence he had taken it, and carefully walked out of the dismal place. The moonbeams were shining very brightly and beautifully upon the face of the cliffs, when he emerged from the subterranean passage, so that he could see the door, the steps, and every object quite distinctly, and, to his gratification, he found that he had not destroyed any fastening that was to the door, but that when it was slammed shut, it struck so hard and fast that the strength of one man could not possibly move it, even the smallest fraction of an inch. "'I shall be shown all this to-morrow,' he said, "'and if I take this house I must have an alteration made in this door, so that it may open with a lock, instead of by main violence, as at present.' But if, in the morning, when I view Anderbury House, I can avoid an entrance into this region, I will do so, and at my leisure, if I become the possessor of the estate, I can explore every nook and cranny of it. He then folded his cloak about him, after pulling the door as closely as he could. He walked slowly and thoughtfully back to the inn. It was quite evident that the idea of the murder he had committed did not annoy him in the least, and that in his speculations upon the subject he congratulated himself much upon having so far succeeded in getting rid of certainly a most troublesome acquaintance. "'Tis well indeed,' he said, "'that just at this juncture he should throw himself in my way, and enable me so easy to feel certain that I shall never more be troubled with him. Truly, I ran some risk, and when my pistol missed fire, it seemed as if my evil star was in its ascendant, and that I was doomed myself to become the victim of him who I have laid in so cold a grave. But I have been victorious, and I am willing to accept the circumstances as an omen of the past, that my fortunes are on the change. I think I shall be successful now, and with the ample means which I now possess, surely in this country, where gold is loved so well, I shall be able to overcome all difficulties, and to unite myself to someone who, but no matter, her fate is an after-consideration. End of chapter 94 Read by Richard Wallace, Liberty, Missouri, 7 April 2009